Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As the pandemic grinds on, we're continuing to present work of both artists and curators that was supposed to be on view now. More and more, the exhibitions we've been featuring on the program over the last couple months seem quite likely to be on view when normalcy returns, whenever that is. Today's guest, Adrienne L. Childs, has curated one such exhibition, a show I just learned will remain on view through January 3rd, 2021. That exhibition is Rifts and Relations, African-American Artists and the European Modernist Tradition at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. Rifts and Relations offers works by Black artists of the 20th and 21st centuries alongside works of the European modernists whose work they engaged. The exhibition catalog includes contributions from Childs, of course, but also from Renee Maurer, Valerie Castle-Oliver, and Dorothy Kaczynski. It was published by Rizzoli Electa. Amazon offers it for $43. Two things before we get to the show. Artist John Edmonds is included in Rifts and Relations. We'll have him on the program in a couple of weeks. And this conversation was recorded just before the death of artist, historian, and collector David C. Driscoll. In hindsight, I'm glad Childs and I included him in this program. Adrienne L. Childs, after the break. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects, from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Explore art from home with Getty Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation, as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth invites you to join us, as usual, on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. for Being There, Revisiting Tuesday Evenings at the Modern. 
a rebroadcast of past lectures on YouTube. Terry Thornton, Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with an online chat to follow. Visit www.themodern.org for more information. And we're back. Adrian L. Childs, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Starting in, say, 1925, who and what most brought European modernism to the particular attention of African-American artists? I think that it was Elaine Locke who can be identified as the who that brought African art to the attention of the most African-American artists. And that's due to his publications, The New Negro, and his kind of evangelical work almost in, in touting the, the spirit of modernism through, in, in many ways, through engaging with African art in terms of a visual idiom in order to create an African-American or quote-unquote Negro spirit in art. There's a lot of artists and thinkers who are trying to revisualize what does it mean to be a modern Negro, as a new Negro as opposed to an old quote-unquote Negro, the stereotypes. And one of the ways was to create a new kind of aesthetic that in many ways was channeled through African art. And then, and of course, those links, the, the links to African art were in some artists channeled through European modernists who were engaging with this material at the turn of the century. So Elaine Locke kind of brought that to the attention of African-American artists. And there's also a lot of exhibitions, a few exhibitions that were very important in Brooklyn. You know, there's a big exhibition of African art in Brooklyn and then MoMA in the 1930s. So there was a big pylon, if you will, of influences as the exhibition demonstrates that many of them were channeled through this sort of avant-garde artists in Europe. Was there a philosophical underpinning or point of address within modern European modernism to which African-American artists could relate or wanted to, to access for their own work? Well, I think that the uh, avant-garde were trying to define something new in, in European avant-garde in contradistinction to traditional European art, conservative art. And of course, African-American artists who are coming together as a kind of a critical mass in the early 20th century were also trying to define something new in contradistinction to how they were represented by the larger community. So they are both trying to define themselves in relation to the larger community, but also trying to define themselves as artists who are can be seen as a part of the larger art community. So therefore, African-American artists, some of them were remained very conservative. So what philosophical underpinnings of thinking of the notion of the primitive white as an interesting or a, a compelling way of living without the constraints of society is, is what the European avant-garde was considering with these objects that were representative of a raw kind of emotion or in a raw, a raw spirit, a raw creative spirit. I don't know that that is what was compelling African-American artists. I think that they were really interested in the links to Africa that they have as a community and the claim that this is their ancestry and they need to be able to not just access it, understand it, use it to create new forms uh, for the 20th century. 
In these years, there's also a graphic designer and illustrator, a, a German-American who is important to the early part of your story. Who is he, and how did, how did he and Locke get together or come to know each other? His name is Winhold Reis. And, of course, he come, comes from Germany to live in uh, New York. And I think that the publisher, Locke's publisher, introduces him as an illustrator. That's what I think. But to be honest, I'm not sure. So that was a fact that we need to check on. But he was someone who was interested in Native Americans. Bryce was someone who was interested in, quote-unquote, Native peoples, Native Americans, African Americans. And he also had a reputation as a an accomplished designer. And I think that Locke felt he would be a good example. And I also think that Locke was somewhat Eurocentric in a way and wanted to bring together different people who were in the field that could help to kind of encourage and foster and nurture this movement that he's trying to trying to grow. That brings us to the American artists in in the show. And I think going from Rice to Aaron Douglas might be the right transition. Douglas, more than any American artist, save probably Marsden Hartley, learns from European modernism without quoting it. He he absorbs it and invents without needing to to lean on it or cite it. What did he take from Europe and what does he come forward with that is solely his own, solely American? It's interesting because Douglas's early work that we use in the show, the work that relates to the new Negro movement, the Harlem Renaissance, like his aspects of Negro life, this style is what we think of as his signature style that is both modern American and, and is influenced by Cubism and influenced directly by Rice's kind of art deco, quote, Afro deco kind of aesthetic. He synthesizes it so well, like you say, that it's, it's almost difficult to pinpoint what is he getting from Europe, right? And what is he, what is it that is his only, what is it that is kind of American? So because he, he brings it together so well, but he then goes on later in his career and does a lot of work that we would might even call impressionist because this style, he, he keeps coming back to this, a style that many of his institutions that commission his work, like Fisk University later commissions him to do murals and many of that. This is the style that he is known for, but he also has another much more kind of European style, but, but, but that's not really relevant to this. Your question is, what is he is he picking up from Europe? I think he's getting a distilled sort of second generation Cubist aesthetic that he immediately begins to combine with this kind of art deco, almost decorative bent because he was also an illustrator and he illustrated books and did a lot of interiors in terms of murals. And so it's it's kind of a, a decorative graphic aesthetic that is very singular in many ways. Now, not all of the African-American commentators on this were in love with what, what he was doing. Um, later on, one of very important scholar, James A. Porter, was thinking that perhaps Douglas and and those who were following Locke's call toward looking at African aesthetics were limiting themselves. 
So it's kind of a really interesting quagmire when you're talking about modernism, whether or not the African-American artists are looking to European modernism, whether they're looking to African art, and how that is playing out in real time among people who are trying to come to terms with the idea that African-American artists have to separate themselves or distinguish themselves in their own voices, not only to distinguish themselves as artists within the American landscape, but to determine an aesthetic that will speak to their history, their needs, their identities. It's a very tough kind of position to be in. But I think Douglas was very successful with it, even though it is so stylized as to be more of a fantasy of Africa than some kind of quote-unquote authentic Africa. Which, presuming he was aware of the way in which French modernists adapted the French decorative tradition to their needs and interests, Matisse, the great example, especially in in the 40s and 50s, I mean, before too, but, but in America in the 40s and 50s, but that idea of of kind of the fantasy land of of the French garden, for example, or the French landscape in in the modernist decorative tradition lives large. So why shouldn't Douglas adapt parts of it for his uses here? Oh, absolutely. There have been a number of sizable Aaron Douglas shows in the United States over the decades, which is all the more remarkable considering that so much of his major work you know, you have to go see it. It's 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 murals in, in New York or at, at Fisk, for example. Hale Woodruff has not gotten the same exhibition attention Douglas has. How does he discover European modernism? You know, whereas, whereas Douglas takes whole cloth and goes all in on flatness and adapting it to his purposes, Woodruff is at times a little sneakier. What is What is his way of addressing the European new? Well, Hale Woodruff was in sort of a, a case a case study. I looked at his work as a case study because I follow his trajectory where he's introduced to European modernism through a gift that's given to him by a gallerist where, when he's a young uh, man in uh, Indianapolis. And he's given the book Africanische Plastique, which is the precursor to Negerplastique by Carl Einstein. And that was a very important publication that influenced German expressionists and and European modernists across the board early in the 20th century. Anyway, it's a book of of images of African art that are kind of decontextualized and treated as art. There's also text in the book, but he couldn't read the text. But what, what it does is it cites him about the possibilities of African art. And it's kind of a patronizing thing. This his this German dealer who gave Woodruff and said, this, these are from by your people. <laughs> and so he should inspire you. But so that's the kind of an attitude. But but it actually, of course, it did inspire him. And he has no he had no problems talking about that later. And he in, ends up being very influenced by Locke and his call to arms. Locke is telling artists, African American artists, look to Picasso and Durand and Matisse to see what they're doing with with African arts. And Woodruff ends up going to Paris and, and is there with other African-American artists and poets and writers who early in the 20th century are searching out something. And it's almost like a like a, the the grand tour, if you will, not quite as luxurious because they were struggling for money, but 
they're there, they're looking at art in all the museums, and he becomes, he starts collecting African objects that are in the flea markets and curio shops in Paris. So he's kind of step by step going through this process. And we see in the work, The Card Players, which is set, set in Paris in 1930, how he is incorporating extreme flatness and spatial uh, flatness and collapsing and, and um, sort of Picasso's cubist angles. And he's also very much influenced by Cezanne. He sees Cezanne there. There's a big Cezanne retrospective there that year where the piece, Cezanne's piece, the card players is exhibited. So you see kind of, we're able to kind of document as he goes along how, at what touch points he's, he is uh, getting his influence and information. What, and what does he do with that? He, he comes up with his painting, the card players and the card players goes back to the United States and is exhibited with the Harmon foundation and sent around the country as an example of the Negro artists who are engaging with modernism and who are engaging with African art. So it's interesting how we can kind of tell the story. I mean, these are the things that we say as professors and art historians. We talk about influence and everything, but we are able to at least really document Hale Woodruff's journey in that way because he did talk about it later on in his interview with the Archives of American Art. So he's a case in point that shows us how artists are are constantly renegotiating, negotiating these different influences and how they make them their own. And then he continues to evolve as time goes on and and absorbs, just like all other artists, absorbs the influences and comes up with his own styles. But he has two tracks. He has the mural track, which is sort of a socialist track. And he also has this kind of modernist aesthetic that he continues to develop into pure abstraction later on in his later years. There's a great moment in Woodruff's card players behind one of the card playing figures. There is a stylized checkerboard, um, a grid, just kind of this great wink in the back middle of the of, of the painting. We'll, ha- we'll have an image of that, of course, on, on manpodcast.com. We will come back to Woodruff later, but before before we do, let's talk about William H. Johnson. You write in, in the book about how Haim Soutin was important to Johnson. Why do you think Johnson gravitated towards Soutin? I think it was a purely aesthetic choice. I think that Johnson's tastes were very much expressionist. And if you look at his work, he was living in Europe at the time and traveling around. He was looking at some Northern European artists, and he was drawn to the expressionist style. Johnson does a, a few interviews that are, and, and, and writes some letters and interviewed with a reporter, an American reporter, but you don't hear his voice quite as much as you do some of the other artists. So it's hard to really pinpoint a motivation, but we know that he really almost trained under him, if you will, because when I think of some of these artists who, who I won't say copy, but who work after other artists consistently, it's almost like they're, tra- it's a training process. And um, this is how, what he did with Soutine and his landscapes. And it led him to his own, his, or his own style eventually. And, and he even followed in Soutine's footsteps going down to the south of France to Cagnes-sur-Mer and standing in the spot where Soutine was painting to revisit these spaces and, and translate them into his own versions, very much kaleidoscopic uh, as Soutine's were. 
the nude is not a form much important in in most of the American art tradition. Horace Pippin, of course, noticed that in his great Lady of the Lake uh, at the Met and kind of winkingly, chucklingly added added a nude to the great American subject of landscape in one of my favorite great weird paintings of all time. <laughs> and Johnson makes a nude in 1939. It's in the show. It's in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's collection. It's a a clear, plain riff on, on Manet and Olympia. Is there a reason other than the obvious Manet precedent that Johnson wanted to do so, something so outside the American tradition? I would say that Johnson is not only responding to Manet, but possibly responding to Picasso and Matisse. And it's very much outside of the American tradition and very much outside of the African-American tradition, if you will. Women's bodies, Black women's bodies being the subject of exploitation historically, we we don't see as many Black men artists or women artists engaging the nude before the 1970s. So I think that this it is unusual for him, but I do think he was really responding to the modernist nude. It's also interesting that she is very much American, <laughs> and she is a woman of a voluptuous woman. She is not an idealized woman. And again, she does, I think, and most people would look at it and think she reflects his response to Manet's Olympia, particularly with the, the bouquet of flowers in the back. She's very different. I mean, she's she might even be someone he, he knows in his hometown. I mean, it's very, very unusual and enigmatic, really. And it's 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 somewhat eroticized, if you will. The enlarged behind the, the bottle that is uh, phallically placed. And so he is still a male artist. <laughs> and we see those elements coming out in this. So I think it's a very unusual painting. The textile is unusual, too. His wife is a textile artist, and I think they were probably North African textiles, maybe, or I don't know. They, they, he actually went to North Africa, one of the earliest African-American artists to travel in Africa. I think Tanner was probably one of the first African-American artists, Henry O. Tanner, to go to Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, and William H. Johnson went a little uh, later. So there's a lot going on in this painting, and but it's so unusual that I think that it's 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 almost anticipates. I think I wrote in the book it anticipates the feminist re- reclamation of the nude, even though I don't call it. I don't think it's necessarily a feminist piece. <laughs> I don't think he's a proto-feminist, but I do think that he is reclaiming something and consciously looking at the black body as something that is worthy of this kind of uh, attention. You have anticipated my transition because um, <laughs> my, my next question was going to be, is there a point at which or a precipitating event that causes American artists, African-American artists to go from joining and engaging European modernism directly to having a more critical point of address. I, I was when I was doing this project, I thought of what periodizations would emerge. Uh, and you notice that there's nothing really from the 70s here. 
are the, the black arts movement, the black power movement. So there are periodizations. There appeared the early part where you African-American art is a modernist project. It is born with modernism and entangled with modernism, period. But when you come to the 60s, 70s, when you the black arts, black power movement comes along and there's a concerted effort to reject anything that seems like you're relying on whiteness, relying on European Eurocentricity uh, and Afrocentricity becomes more, certainly more important. I don't, I didn't find anything. And I also was very, it was very important to me that to understand if the artist's intention was not to engage with modernism in whatever way they engaged it, then I didn't want to assume or say, well, it looks like it, so therefore it must be, even though I'm, I could probably find artists in there who I, we could pinpoint and say, oh, they were clearly influenced by this or that. Anyway, the point here is, when do they start turning things? When do things start turning around? And I would say in the 50s and 60s, we, we don't want to isolate African-American artists. There are people out there that American pop artists who are looking at the history of art, who are seeing themselves as criticizing sort of this postmodern, if you will, critique of, of art history or the way art history is even told. So Larry Rivers, for instance, I think is a big impact on Bob Thompson. So Bob Thompson is working in the late 50s and early 60s, and he's in the context of other artists who are riffing on the canon. And so he begins to look at this European art and incorporate European art history. Bob Colescott is doing the same thing in the in the 50s and the 60s. So I think that it's a bigger, it's they're part of the bigger transition into the kind of postmodernism. Colescott, particularly with his wicked sense of humor, he is a, a pivot in a way uh, that is, I don't know, feels to me pretty sudden and he gets away with it because because we're in on the joke, because he's 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 making tradition the punchline and and makes sure we know that he knows that we all know it. <laughs> exactly. And if you look at someone like Romare Bearden, who is also working along these years and who's very much engaged with art history and sees himself as part of this lineage, if you will, his work doesn't have that edge uh, and that Cole Scott's work is like a a, a sledgehammer. So they're, they're, they start splitting off, right? And then one influences the other. But I don't want to think of African-American art as something that is contained and, and, and it moves along in its own bubble. Because as this whole project shows, there's semi-permeable membranes or there are no membranes. And we need to start looking at how Black artists uh, are part of a very big tapestry. So, so tapestry and textile, we'll, we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> But while we're talking about this kind of transitional period or, or artists who, who, who kind of have a foot in, in several places at once, I want to talk about Elizabeth Catlett. There's, there's a story that pops up again and again throughout the book of a, a Black American artist having been pointed to African art, African sculpture perhaps, by a friend or teacher. And that nudge seems to have been read by the artist as a kind of art world permission or confirmation that it's okay to engage with Africa directly rather than having Africa mediated by, by Europe. And the story of Catlett here is represented by her late sculpture, Ife. Ife as a place, of course, is an ancient Yoruban city in southern modern-day Nigeria. 
but Catlett sculpture refers as much to forms she accessed from a Russian-born French sculpture sculptor she knew. What did she put together and how did she do it? It's interesting that you say that the this is a recurring story throughout the book and in terms of the influence of perhaps a European teacher or some someone. And in her case, we know that she, she talked about Zadkin and how he not only taught her about form, she talks about negative space, car, direct carving, but she also talked about him introducing her to African art. But I would say that it would have come anyway. So, uh, but she does, she does uh, talk about that. And it would have come to all of these artists anyway, but, but there's a point at which they remember a teacher or a mentor. So it's interesting how she, again, she's synthesizing too. Perhaps the best, best of the best are the ones who, who can synthesize influence and, and to create something completely unique. But of course her work, I love this piece, Ife, because it does represent not not only her, her her beautiful craftsmanship, and if you'd see it in, in person, it's it's really stunning. And there is a very large he- the head is extends behind almost like a big headdress. I mean, you can't see that in this photo, but she's synthesizing her interest in pre-Columbian sculpture. She's synthesizing her interest in African work and modernist sculpture. I mean, there's Henry Moore all over this piece, and. She and she's also looking to create an aesthetic that is sort of pan-ethnic, because she does live in Mexico. She's an expatriate. She's lived there, married, had children, and she's thinking about women's issues and the history of of women who are workers, the men, women who are activists, and the power of women. And so she's really trying to create something that is both rooted in race and transcends race. And, and it's through this multi-dimensional aesthetic there. And then by naming it Ife, she's, of course, talking about the, the great civilization that produced what people think of as a classical sculpture, classical African sculpture. And some, of course, racist naysayers would think that they thought that perhaps Egyptians came down to present-day Nigeria and created this advanced sculpture so, but it is a proud kind of history in terms of the history of art. And she's recalling that through an, ob- an object that really is, represents a reclining nude in the, in the very much the European tradition and the tradition of Matisse and the tradition of Henry Moore. And in the exhibition, we have it installed in the room with Matisse's large seated nude. And the, the relationship there is just stunning and, and, and really beautiful. We didn't even expect it until we put them in the same room together because they were not the two that I had intended to have in conversation, but uh, we see the, the, the beautiful relationships. So I think that Elizabeth Catlett really hits the mark when it comes to trying to, to riffing and relating. <laughs> Catlett's Ife and Matisse's sculptures, the women in those works have more presence, confidence, self-assertion, than you ever get in in a Picasso. And and so, yes, that that sounds like a great pairing. I mentioned wanting to come back to Hale Woodruff, and and now's now's the time. As artists are beginning to interrogate European modernism and indeed European tradition, Woodruff sails in with Africa and the Bull from about 1958, which is both Titianesque and 
and and then he really loads it up. What is Woodruff doing in in this extraordinary painting? Well, he is without a doubt responding to Titian's Europa and the Bull, uh, or the Rape of Europa. And this is an origin story. The the no, the name Europe, right, is told in in mythology, of course, that this is how Europe is named through this woman who's carried off. Europa who's carried off by the bull and then and dropped in, in another land which becomes Europe. So I think that knowing him and as erudite as he was, thinking that perhaps the origin story of Western civilization is not necessarily Europe, but it may be Africa, correct? Uh, so I think there's a, a clear kind of political message there. And of course, he's completely absorbed his cubist aesthetic that he was trying out rehearsing in in Paris in the 19 in 1930 and it's come to define his work here but it is very much in the 1950s kind of style if you will but i think he's positing the notion that not only is africa an origin story but that an african woman has that kind of beauty and and the, and the african woman can can be a reclining new, just like we saw with William H. Johnson. I never even thought of those two as being related. But there is this relation, this sticking point of this reclining nude woman that comes up so much in European art and is railed against, as we will probably talk about with postmodern feminist artists. But this this is very much a, a, a trope of European art, this reclining nude. I also read the painting as a critique of imperialism and colonialism. The bull in Woodruff's painting is white, and the the nude is painted entirely in black, although, of course, there's some slightly lighter lines so that we can delineate the figure, if that makes sense. We'll have an image on, on bandpodcast.com. But yeah, it also reads to me as a as a as a critique of uh, European colonialism. We've been talking about how artists address Europe and modernism and Africa in the content of their work rather less than we've been talking about how they've done it in the forms of their work. But that happens too. And a great example is Emma Amos. In the early 90s, Amos is looking extra intently at Matisse and wonderfully at Matisse. Why then? And, 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 and how is she addressing him? Again, well, we can draw back and see her addressing many of these powerful European modernists and powerful European artists, uh, male artists. Going back to the 70s, yeah. So she is a constant, her concerns seem to be fairly consistent in terms of dealing with that power structure within the art world. But there is a moment where she becomes really interested in specific artists like Matisse, like Gauguin, and, and their relationship to her as an art, her own status as an artist right, as well, and her old voice as an artist, as a black female artist. And so this work that she is has put together, which is fairly enigmatic and perhaps tongue-in-cheek, perhaps very tongue-in-cheek, Mal- Malcolm X, Morley, Matisse, and me, but she puts her own name, her own self, into the, the equation here, as she does in some of the other self-portraits as our other artists. And what's interesting here is that we don't know which figure she is. Is she the reclining nude, the seated nude sculpture by Matisse, or is she the blue nude 
right? And how, why is she putting Malcolm X into Malcolm X Morley and re- obviously referencing the African-American activist Malcolm X and then the uh, British artist Malcolm Morley with a, she represents a painting by him in the background, a watercolor, as well as a very mysterious photograph by Shivery, George Shivery. So this is, an uh, again, an enigmatic representation of um, that deals with art's power structures, it deals with the nude. And it also indicates, I think, that she is not trying to destroy this history of art. I think too, there's a certain amount of interest in it and respect for it, but there's also a, a, a desire to level kind of the playing field and, and, to, and to disrupt what is an old boy's kind of network. So how, how does she come to it? I think that, again, this is in an era when many artists in the 90s, 80s and 90s, are concerned with these, particularly Black artists, are making their mark on the tyranny of art's history and the way art history is told, the way it's it's exhibited, and the, the power that the museums wield. I mean, many of these artists, particularly this piece by Emma Amos, comes right after a big Matisse show at the Museum of Modern Art. And after a while, if you're an outsider, if you're not being sort of incorporated into this machine, the art world machine, you can address it in your art. And actually, you can get a little bit more attention by doing that. I mean, it is also a way of drawing attention to yourself. Her painting is bordered by African fabrics. She clearly knew that Matisse loved African textiles, owned African textiles, was frequently photographed with them, represented them in his work. And she's going a step further by foregrounding them in her art object on a, on, on a par with the painted surface, which I think is pretty, pretty neat, something she does a good, a good bit. Speaking of Matisse, what do you think attracted Barbara Chase Rabot to Matisse's backs? I see Barbara Chase Rabot as a consummate formalist, and I see in some ways Matisse's backs as being representative of the power of, of formalism on, on a grand scale in terms of in terms of his own work. Those are very large sculptures. I mean grand scale. And so I, I feel like she she was interested in this form of the stele that Matisse's back is 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 what she calls a stele, like a large slab. And she has done many, many series of these these works. And in this one I feel like she's really just interested in how Matisse was able to distill the human body down to uh, large, heavy metal forms that suggest the back, but also become completely abstract. And this was an, an instance where I think the artist is just purely interested in the way another artist has sort of accomplished something that they admire. The last big topic I, w- I, w- I want to bring up is a person, David Driscoll. Driscoll makes, taught, collects. How might your project, this show and book, provide ways into considering or addressing the influence of his career or careers, for that matter? That's very interesting because David Driscoll is not only was a mentor, but is someone who I consider, quote unquote, a renaissance man, if you will who is both an artist, a collector, a teacher, curator, 
and, and a philosopher in many ways, and has always been open to understanding the complexities of African-American art production or art produced by African-Americans and always interested in understanding not, not only the, the ancestral lineages to African art, but how important it is to, for artists be open to travel, to uh, understanding the way art history in and of itself. In other words, he's an artist and an art historian, and these things go hand in hand with his own artistry. And as a writer, I mean, he was writing about the image of the Black, if you will, in Western art years and years ago. And he was incorporating these the issue of race and representation into his consideration of how artists in his own time are, are working. And so he's always been someone who is open to different interpretive strategies. And I think that one of the reasons why I was even thinking about this book was because I've worked with him for so many years personally and saw not only in his work, his interest in people like Ruel or Matisse or Juan Gris. And I, and I felt that it was something that got lost because the way we talk about African-American art often is circumscribed around the experience of race in the United States or the experience of the longing for or the dream of sort of uh, an a- Africa and how it bubbles up in our work or or how it is a possible future. But I think that this is how we think about African-American art and circumscribed along those lines. But I always felt that there was other ways that we could open it up and, and still talk about it without letting the European aspects of it dominate or take up all the space in the room uh, if we did things intelligently. So he's a very good example of that. And the way, and just the way he lives, I mean, I know him personally, so I know his home is 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 almost like a, a museum and it's open to people coming through and uh, artists and lots of books and lots of art. And, and so kind of eclectic uh, way of living and an appreciation for the interior life of art. And so I think that there's a, his influence has been great on me. I was unfortunately only able to bring one piece of his into the show. I would have had many more had I not had to include so many other, other artists. But his, his work has sort of allowed me to think of ways of looking at art differently. In the catalog, my colleague wrote a wonderful essay on Duncan Phillips and the Black community in D.C. And Renee Maurer wrote a wonderful essay on Duncan Phillips and his relationship to the Black uh, community, the arts community in D.C. And David Driscoll is part of that, particularly the Barnett Aiden collection. And the early, in the 1950s how the and 40s, the gallery encouraged sort of integrated arts exhibitions and Phillips loaned um, work, European work from his collection to Howard University Art Gallery, where Alonzo Aiden and um, James Herring exhibited works of African-American and European art together, or just works of European art would come in for the students at Howard. So there was a much more integrationist, if you will, spirit 
during that time. And I know that Driscoll worked at the gallery and was very much part of that. And that's one of the ways he had a kind of expansive view from an early perspective as, as an arts professional. So we really have for, almost forgotten about how Washington, D.C. was was kind of at the forefront of uh, a lot of these arts, the arts community thinking of itself as something more expansive and, 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 and less limited. But then later on, you have 1960s and 70s coming together and, and the idea of the Black arts excluding white artists and being completely sort of separated was a sign of power and control. And, we, and it kind of eclipsed what was going on earlier. I had not known that Driscoll and Alma Thomas used to visit the Phillips together, particularly on Sundays, says the essay. <laughs> the Phillips was welcoming to African-Americans in Washington, and as more so than some of the other institutions. And they were also collecting, I mean, of course, they collected the Jacob Lawrence migration series, half of that. That was a big coup early. And... Um, have been at the forefront of Jacob Lawrence exhibitions and research for quite a while. Acquired in early Sam Gilliam, 67. That was his first major museum acquisition was from the Phillips. So I think Duncan Phillips, he had a particular taste, but he was certainly interested in, in art that was not limited to racial designations or to temporal designations. And you would exhibit works from different eras altogether to talk about their personalities as opposed to their differences. Adrian L. Childs, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.